Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Inside Writing Podcast presented by Gotham Writers. I'm your host, Josh Sippy. As a reminder, all of these episodes are recorded live Wednesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Zoom. You can join us there, bring your questions, uh, sign up for free on the Gotham Writers website, and enjoy the show. Today, we are talking with Aaron Entrada Kelly. Aaron is a Newbery Award winning and New York Times bestselling author of numerous children's books including the book that won her the Newberry Hello Universe, which has been optioned by Netflix, the Newberry Honor book, We Dream of Space, the recent title, Maybe, Maybe Marisol Rainey, and the forthcoming Those Kids from Fawn Creek. Hello, Erin. Welcome to the show. Hi, Josh. Thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah. So, Erin, you, you have such a storied, award-winning career. You've got all these books out there, but I want to start at the beginning. What was sort of the creative impulse that kickstarted your journey as a writer? So I think, um, well, I don't think I know. It started when I was a kid, when I was very young. Um, like a lot of people, I'm assuming on this call, not all, but, but many, I'm sure, I was, I was a, a quiet, very introspective girl. And um, when I was a kid, I felt, I kind of felt sad and lonely a lot. I didn't always know why. Um, but I loved to spend time in my room reading books. And at some point, very early on, I figured out, wait a minute, books are just words on paper. And I have paper and I have a pencil and I can write my own stories. And I really, really loved when I was a kid and I still do, but especially when I was a kid, I loved the idea that the world could be anything I wanted it to be on paper. Um, so I started writing stories very young. I have some here, some early works. <laughs> um, probably eight years old, I wrote this. And of course, I illustrated it. Um, this is a very um, obvious knockoff of Sweet Valley High. Um, it's called the Golden Valley Twins. Um, we call it fan fiction. We'll call it fan fiction. Um, so I have many of these. And then, you know, as I got older, I graduated to notebooks. And I still write all my first drafts this way, by the way, in a notebook by hand. Um, so that's really where it started. And I have honestly been writing ever since. And I will say really quickly that I have a lot of writer friends who did not read nor write when they were kids. So it's not, it's not a, it's not necessarily a prerequisite. Um, but for me, it was. And that's really what started it. And I have been writing ever since. I, I'm just a very voracious reader and I love to write. And my world has pretty much always revolved around words. Even the jobs that I had later were, you know, revolved around words. When, when was it in your writing journey that it dawned on you that this is something that you wanted to do like full time? Like this, is, this was your passion in life. Honestly, as early as when I was a kid, because I thought in elementary school, I thought, oh, when I grow up, I'll just be a best-selling author and I'll write books all the time and I'll be just like Judy Bloom. That was how I had it in my head. Because, you know, when you're a kid, um, anything is possible and anything is possible usually. However, um, as we all know, you can't just write books and become a bestseller and then just do that for the rest of your life. So it was around maybe like middle school, high school, when I started getting more context of how the world works, I, I realized, wait a minute, you can't just be a writer and just get published. And like, there's all these things that have to happen. 
So I thought, okay, what jobs can I have where I'm, where I'm able to write? Um, and that's how I got into journalism and, and all the other things I did before I became a full-time writer. So it was very early actually. And, and even in middle school, I would get those big writers markets, you know, the big, like with all the agents and publishers, I mean, as early as then I would get them from like Walden books. And they were huge. If you remember be walking out of Walden books, like this little skinny 11 year old with this big book thinking I'm going to find an agent and I'm going to get my book published. Um, so it's been very early on with some tweaks. And I want to get to your, uh, your work as a journalist in a second, but I imagine you had other side jobs along the way. Did, did you ever have any trouble focusing on the writing? It sounds like the writing just comes naturally for you. There were times, honestly, like um, when I worked as a journalist specifically, um, I worked as a newspaper journalist. I got a job as a proofreader. Um, very young, like um, right out of high school, going into college, they hired me at the bottom rung, you know, the proofreader at my local paper. And whenever I was working as a feature writer, I kind of worked my way up. Um, there were times when I had trouble switching my my brain from from newspaper writer brain to uh, fiction writer brain. Um, but even then, I was still working on short stories, trying to find my voice. Um, I would write a lot at work. Um, I can confess to that now, um, you know, and I would send myself, e well, they didn't have emails back when I first started at the newspaper, um, but I would, I would like jot things down in my notebooks and, you know, just seize time whenever I could, but it was difficult a little bit, um, to switch from newspaper brain to fiction brain, just because the two styles are so different. Mm -hmm. When you were writing for with, with your newspaper brain, was it obvious to you that this was not the end goal? Like that wasn't the kind of writing that you wanted to do? Was fiction the more attractive option there? It was, but but I will say that that I did love um, working as a journalist and working as the feature writer. Um, so it never felt like a burden per se, but I did know that my ultimate goal was to be a published author and, and do that full time. So that always was my goal, but I never felt burdened by, by my job, if, if that makes sense. You know, I never thought if not for this newspaper job, I could pursue it um, because I knew that no matter what job I had, it was going to be, there were going to be challenges to pursuing, you know, uh, publication because there's a lot of uh, challenges and ups and downs and all that stuff. So, mm -hmm. yeah. You mentioned finding your writing voice and you, I mean, there's a lot of writers out there who I, I just feel like have a very good sense of what their voice is and you're one of them. So I'm curious when it was that you found your way into children's literature, when you started to write from that perspective and if it did it like hit you right away, like, oh, this is it. Or, or what was your exploration like there? Thanks for asking that because um, my way into children's literature was through short stories, actually. So Back when um, I was working at the newspaper and I was writing stories, I, I had it in my head that I was going to write uh, literature for adults. You know, what, what we perceive as the great American novel, like very literary and like, you know, I had all these ideas and um, that's what I was pursuing. But then after about 50 pages or so, every single manuscript around that 50 page mark would just put her out and die. And I wasn't engaged with it and I wasn't enjoying it. It felt more like an assignment. So I started writing short stories because, um, you know, you could finish them much quicker, obviously, 
it teaches you everything you need to know about writing prose as far as like character arc, narrative arc, all that stuff. Um, there's a sense of satisfaction because you can complete it. And it also teaches you how to submit, how to take rejection and all these things. So I was like, okay, I'm going to focus on short stories. So I did. And um, the short stories started getting picked up slowly. I mean, you know, I got a lot of rejections and this was like in the mail. So this was back when you got like a hard copy of your rejection. Um, so I started doing that. And then I realized at some point that all my short stories had something in common. They were all written for adults, but almost all of them were coming of age stories. And almost all of them were, they had characters between the ages of eight and 12. So when I noticed that pattern, I thought, well, that's interesting. Um, and then I started wondering, maybe I should write for that age group. Then I started reading middle grade and I, and I realized that um, you don't have to write a, novels for adults to be literary, obviously. Um, there's so much in middle grade and young adult that uh, people don't realize unless they're engaged with the community, so much rich literary life happening there. And I thought, this is where I want to be. And that's how I found, and that from then on, I focused on that. I read um, a bunch of middle grade novels. Then I started working on one, finished it and felt connected to it um, in a way that had not happened before with, with the adult novels. Mm -hmm. I have to ask the first one you wrote, was it one that ended up being published or one that kind of just paved the way and you set aside? It was not the one that wound up being published. So the one that I wrote was, was um, it was much more literary, I guess you could say. I wound up taking parts of that and using it for Lilani of the Distant Sea, which is right there. So I wound up taking parts of that novel and using it for Lilani but it wasn't the one that got picked up. Uh, Blackbird Fly, which is why we were playing the intro music, right? My first novel, um, my first published novel was the second manuscript that I wrote. Mm -hmm. I'm always curious about that. I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit more about the order you wrote them and the order they were published in. Cause I assume the order they were published in wasn't the order that you wrote them in or, or was there any sort of order to it like later on in your writing career? So I wrote, um, what we'll call kind of the early version of Lalani of the Distant Sea, though it was very different first. And back then the character's name was Mayumi. So I always think of that book as the Mayumi book. So I wrote the Mayumi book. Um, then I wrote Blackbird Fly, but it was very different from the finished product. Um, so almost completely different book. Um, and then I was, I was already working on the, my next book, which wound up being The Land of Forgotten Girls. So Actually, the, the order that my books had been published, for the most part, um, are the order that I wrote them. However, I will say that there are other manuscripts that I wrote between those that have never been published and probably never will be published. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, it's clear, especially given what you said and given your publishing history. I mean, you, you, you write a lot. You, from 2015 through 2022, you're going to have one book coming out every single year. That's really impressive. So the simple question here, and I imagine it has a simple answer as well, but how do you write so much? Like most people, it's it's a labor just to get one book out, but it seems like you just churn them out. Yeah, I, I you know what? Honestly, I think um, it's a few different things. Number one is I'm very, I learned how to be very, very comfortable with my writing process. And it takes a while to figure out what your personal process is. Um, 
that that's helpful. And part of my process involves a lot of planning ahead. So before I ever start writing, I have a very clear vision of what the book is. Um, that's helpful. Another thing that's helpful is I write fast and I revise fast. I'm a very fast thinker and I'm a very fast, like onto the next thing kind of person. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from uh, background in newspapers and magazines, honestly, because you, you're always on deadline and the deadline is always yesterday. You know what I mean? And, and you have to learn how to edit quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've found that with, with other friends of mine who work in, in journalism, a lot of times they tend to be fast uh, writers, fast revisers, fast thinking. Um, so that has helped me. But also when Blackbird Fly got published, I had already written other manuscripts. Uh, I had already written Land of Forgotten Girls, which was my second book. It was already done. So I've always been kind of a book of, ahead. And that's just how my my brain works. Um, but I spend a lot of time, you know, I have my, my book that comes out in March, those kids from Fawn Creek. Um, this one's done, right? It's, it's in the, it's pretty much done, but I'm already thinking of the next book and outlining it in my head. Mm-hmm. So I think that has, um, that has definitely benefited me in being able to, uh, have a lot of books. Mm-hmm. Has your routine changed at all over the years? I mean, from 2015 to, you know, where you are now, you've won so many awards, you, you've been on bestseller list. Has your routine changed at all? Or has it always been essentially the same? It hasn't. No, it hasn't really changed that much. The only thing that's changed is now that I write full time. I mean, I do teach, but for the most part, I write full time is that I have way more time. So my time isn't as precious as it used to be, which allows me more time to procrastinate. So that's really the only thing that's changed. But um, it's still the same process. I still spend months in my head teasing out the characters, the plot, the story before I ever start writing a, a single thing. So by the time I get my notebook, and um, this is the notebook for Fawn Creek. So by the time I get my notebook, I have a very robust story. I've, I've visualized it all in my head. And the next step is just to get it down on paper. So when do you know that it's time to, because I, I want to get more into your outlining because we don't often talk a lot about the whole pantser versus, uh, versus planner argument. It sounds like you are like the ultimate planner. So are you pretty strict with it? Like, do you have a set routine where I have to have this much done before I start writing? I'm not in that sense. So when I know it's time to start writing is when I'm, I'm not, it's kind of hard to, it's kind of like an, an innate um, organic thing. So it's hard to say, but when I feel like there's no more questions I can ask of the characters or the manuscript, that's when I sit down and write. And that's when new questions come up, of course. Um, so usually the way that I, that I start is once I have the idea in my head, I sit down with my notebook. And then in this example, I, I write down the whole story that was in my head. I write it all down in a summary. And this changes. So the names often change. You can see cross outs and changes. Um, so I'm not, I don't consider myself beholden to this um, because I want to be able to follow the characters wherever they go. Um, so I don't want to be shackled to an outline. I don't feel like that's a good way to be creative for me. But I do like to have an idea of where I'm going. I think of it like as a, as a roadmap. You know, I have like, I, I have my, this, okay, I'm going to take 95, you know, to blah, blah place. 
But if I want to get off and take a different route because it looks more scenic or because the weather changed and I want to go a different way, I go a different way. I don't just stay the course for the sake of staying the course. And I usually, after I do this whole summary thing, um, I'll usually start teasing out the characters. Um, and this is like a, you know, just like little, literally little paragraphs and little um, notes about them, which often change. Um, and then I'll start kind of outlining it. And I will say that here's another example of some character outlining. With my outlining, I have a beginning where the story should start, what the middle is going to look like, and always what the end is going to be. As far as what happens between those things, I will outline usually three chapters at a time. So I'll write, okay, chapters one through three, this is what's going to happen. And then at the end of the, the third chapter, or while I'm doing the third chapter, I'll do, okay, now I'm gonna do four through six. Mm -hmm. And that helps keep the story organic, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Definitely, yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm curious where you were as a, so you won the Newberry for Hello Universe, which I think was your third book, correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. Um, where were you as a writer when that happened? I mean, were you feeling pretty confident in your voice? What, what like, because was it, since you was this a surprise to you or were you like in a place where you're like, I know who I am as a writer, you know, th this all feels like part of the process. Okay, first of all, I never feel confident. <laughs> so no, um, but when I won the Newberry, it was a complete surprise. Um, it was a total surprise. And I'm glad because I, the worst thing that could be is it's like if I'm sitting here expecting I'm going to win something and then nothing happens, but I didn't expect it. So I felt, I shouldn't say I never feel confident. You know, obviously I know that, that I have skill and talent as a writer, but that being said, you know, I read other books, just like many of you, if there's right, I'm assuming there's a lot of writers here. And I read those books and I think, oh God, why can't I write like that person? Why can't I write a book like that? Or why didn't I think of this? So I still go through all that. So I felt, um, I felt confident in that, in that middle grade was um, where I needed to be and where I wanted to be. So in that sense, I felt like I felt good, but I was completely shocked. <laughs> And did anything change for you after you won? I mean, it sounds like you just kept doing the same thing you were doing because it's not like there was a let off after that award. You, your, your books just kept coming out and kept getting the same acclaim that they were getting. Um, nothing changed as far as my process and the books that I was going to write. Um, but everything changed in a practical sense because it was after the Newberry that I was able to, to quit my full-time job. At the time, I was working as a, um, a copy editor for a corporate copy editor. And, um, you know, and then all my books earned out, you know, which doesn't always happen. So my life, things changed in a practical life sense. But as far as me as a writer, nothing about me changed. I still, if I had never won the Newberry, all the books that I've written would still, I still would have written those books and I still would have done the same process. Mm -hmm. So I want to backtrack a little bit and, and talk about getting an agent, finding an agent, working with an agent. So you mentioned having written that first book, which became parts of your second book, but that first book, did you query that book at all? Or did you kind of just know it wasn't right? 
I did query it. And I, I think I queried, I can't remember how many people, maybe 20. So not, not a huge number. Um, and I got a lot of, of course, forum rejections and no responses, but I did get a few, like two or three, maybe, um, personal feedback, um, which is always a success when you get personal feedback in my mind. And basically the feedback was, um, it's a great book, but we don't know how to market this book, which is a big aspect of the industry, right? Um, we don't know who, what, who, what kind of reader to give it to um, because it wasn't exactly fantasy. Lalani of the Distancy is a fantasy, but the original Mayumi story um, wasn't a fantasy, but it, ha it felt like a fantasy. Um, which if that makes any sense, it was just very literary and very like um, introspective, I guess you could say. Um, so that was the feedback that I got. But I did get a lot of requests for full manuscripts, which is also a success. So I tell people, you know, if you're querying and an agent requests a full manuscript, even if, even if the manuscript isn't ultimately represented, you know, in my mind, that's a, that's a clue that you're doing something right, that you're on the right track. So I knew that, that I was on the right track because I was getting requests. I want to read, you know, agents would say, send me the whole thing. I want to read it. And even if they didn't represent it, there was something about the writing and the concept that made them want to request to read the whole thing. So that tells me, okay, I'm on to something here. I just need to figure out, you know, um, how to get over that next hump, right? Mm -hmm. So the, so at what point did you realize, okay, I'm going to stop this. And did you already have your other project ready that ended up getting you an agent? Um, I did not. No, I don't think I did. It's hard for me to remember now, but I, I stopped querying my Yumi because I felt like, okay, maybe again, it was kind of like a, an intuition thinking, okay, cause, cause 20 isn't really, it may sound like a lot to a lot of people, but querying 20 agents really isn't that many because there are so many agents. Um, but I did stop querying that. And I thought, okay, um, let me, let me take a look at, you know, this, this book and what I want to do and, um, and what other stories I want to tell. And I really, I really started looking inward, which I think, I think a lot of writers do, especially for their first books or when they're just starting out is I started thinking, what's my story? So, you know, I wrote Blackbird Fly, basically Apple, the main character is me. So it is like a story of me at age 12 with differences, of course, because she's her own character. But I started thinking about, you know, what kind of story I want to tell and why do I want to tell it? Um, and why am I the person to tell it? And that's how Blackbird Fly came about. And that's the book that was ultimately represented and published. And did that one take you a while to get picked up on? Or, or was it sort of like an instant hit? It took, um, it didn't take a while. And I always feel bad saying that because I know there's a lot of people who've been querying for a long time and with a lot of manuscripts. Um, but I was very fortunate. I think I, I think I queried, well, I, I did, I query, I had 10 agents. I queried those 10 and I got my agent out of those 10, those, that first batch of 10. Mm -hmm. And has that, remind me, is that the agent you're still working with or has that been the agent the whole time? No, I'm actually on my third agent. Okay. Um, my, so my dream agent for the, for my first book, when I queried, well, my dream agent from the beginning was Sarah Crow with Pippin Properties. 
Um, she's one of the best agents in the industry. And she rejected um, this book and she rejected Miami. Um, but now she's my agent now. So she's ultimately became my third agent. Now I'm very happy with her. Uh, I tease her sometimes that she rejected my earlier books, but we, we don't hold it against her. <laughs> <laughs> So what now that you, you know, you've, you've been established, I guess when you first, uh, when you first got your agent, how did that sort of change your writing trajectory? Like, like what was your, were you on deadlines now? Were you having to get, you know, a, agent approval for what you worked on or did it, did it alter the way you approached your writing at all? It did not. It, it only altered it in the sense that, um, yeah, it didn't. And I, and I'll tell you why I was with, I've been with the same editor for every book that I've published. So she and I have like a very close relationship. And um, so I've never, I have not been in a situation yet where I had to go out to other houses, other publishing houses and, and do all these things. I'm able to talk to my editor directly, which is not necessarily common or typical, but in my case, again, very fortunate that Blackbird Fly was picked up by Green Willow at HarperCollins, and they're such a great imprint, and it's a really great fit for me. Um, so it didn't, it, it changed it, well, I will say this, it changed it slightly in the sense that once you get an agent, or once you decide that you want to get an agent or get published in a very serious way, it does change the relationship that you have with writing, um, for better or worse, in the sense that before, when you're writing just for yourself, when you're just kind of like figuring it out and you write whatever you want, um, once you get an agent, um, and this isn't true for everyone, but I think it's it's true for many. Once you get an agent and you know that you can sell something or you know you can write a book that someone will acquire, I feel like there is that piece of you that you know wants to spend time on something that you know could be acquired rather than I'm gonna write this for fun. Now, ideally it's both. And that's happened for me. In other words, I never write a book thinking I'm gonna write this book cause I know it'll sell. It's more like thinking I wanna write this book um, and I think it will probably sell, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so. There's that. I mean, the, the manuscripts that I've written that, that I mentioned before that haven't been published, a lot of them are horror um, because I love dark horror. I love dark stories, um, but that's not my aesthetic, right? Like I'm, the established aesthetic that I have is not that. Um, so, but there is a piece of me who wants to write horror and loves to read horror, but am I going to spend time doing that or am I going to spend time um, writing other stories that I love. Um, you know, does that make sense? So, so there is a practical side of your brain that's like, okay, do I want to spend two years writing this this other book that may not be as strong? Or do I want to spend two years writing this book that I also feel strongly about, but is more in keeping with my aesthetic? Mm-hmm. I don't know if any of that made any sense. It, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and, and I see, I do have a follow-up for that. Like, at what point do you think it will be time where you say, I want to write a horror now? Like, is that point going to come or do you just, do you think you're just going to keep doing your brand? And, and, and cause it sounds like you're perfectly happy there too. So do you think that time will come where you switch to horror? You know what? There, there may be, I am definitely perfectly happy. All the books that I've written and published, I'm proud of and feel deep connections to. Um, and 
but that being said, I did write, it's been a few years now, I did stop and write a horror, uh, you know, novel. It's a ghost story because those are my favorite um, about hauntings. I love hauntings. Um, so I did do that. And my agent did read it and she loved it. Um, kind of going back to your question about agent approval. Um, you know, I would never want to be in a situation where I'm asking anyone for, for approval per se. But I do share with my agent what I'm thinking because she needs to know because she's, you know, my agent. Um, and she loved it. And she said, you know, uh, it's a great book. We may let's talk about like how if we go out with this book, how how would it work? In other words, would I need to do a pen name? Would I need to what, what would I need to do? But ultimately, the book was put to bed because um, I kind of decided that I wasn't ready to veer off yet. Um, but there may come a time when I am. And, and also I will say this too, Josh, like, I think that just because I love reading horror and I also love Gothic fiction, love Gothic fiction, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I need to write those things. If it's not the right time, if my voice isn't right for it, um, that's been part of my writing journey as well is to accept that I don't have to write everything that I love. I love science fiction. Um, so if I veered off, it would probably, I've been talking about horror this whole time, but I also love science fiction. So if I ever veered off, it would probably be time travel because I love time travel. So who knows? <laughs> I also don't want to keep writing the same story either though. You know, I don't want to get redundant in my contemporary or my, my coming of age stories. Um, you know, I also don't want to get redundant there. So we'll see what happens. I mean, I have I one fantasy that's kind of in there that's not part of my aesthetic, um, so. I find it interesting. You have such an established middle grade, you know, line of books and it doesn't feel like horror science fiction is that far off the beaten path, but it's a completely different market for that. It's not a completely different market. It's still, it's still the same market, but it, it's, a, it's a different reader, I think. Not, not, this is a very blanket, phrase because I'm a reader and I read everything um but but I think it's a little bit of a different vibe you know so it's something to think about but for now I can enjoy it as a reader and you know keep doing what I'm doing mm -hmm. I want to get one more question in before we go to audience questions because there's a lot of good ones here but you mentioned uh Sarah Crow being your dream agent I know for a lot of people researching agents can be kind of daunting how, how do you know when an agent is right for you? And how did, how did you have a dream agent? What was it about her that stood out? So I did all the things that people do. I, I did a lot, a lot of research uh, into agents and I got a subscription to Publishers Marketplace. Um, and honestly, that's where, that's where I knew that I wanted to be with Sarah because Publishers Marketplace will tell you these are the top 10 agents um, in, your, in your field. Sarah was always, um, in that group and I looked at the books she represented and the authors she represented and that's how I knew okay she's one of the best I'm going to be with the best and she's my dream agent so that's kind of how I came to that conclusion mm -hmm. all right so I want to get to some audience questions now since there's they're piling up here uh first question is how do you keep the process of writing and editing apart Oh boy. Uh, well, I don't know if I should say this because it goes against what we hear, but I, I do a lot of revising as I go. And actually, I think it's important to say that because we always hear, 
write the first draft, don't touch it, don't worry about it, get it out there and then go back and revise. And that's good advice, but it's not advice for everyone. And that's not what I do. Um, I tried to do that and it didn't work. So this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about trusting your own process. I revise as I go. Um, I'll sit down when I'm ready to write and I'll read what I wrote before and I'll make changes and revisions. Um, and then when I'm done with the whole manuscript as a whole, I'll print it out. And I actually have an example. I'll print it out and I'll get it bound. This is Lalani of the Distancy. That's the fantasy that I referenced. And I'll go through and read it as if I'm, I've never seen it before, which is obviously very hard to do. But, um, and then I go through and make notes. And so it looks like a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, small notes. Then there's a lot of, oh, this whole chapter needs to go. And then I'll revise, I'll rewrite the chapters. So I revise as I go and then I print it out and then I do more revisions um, is usually how I do it. Next question. What are, so, what are your favorite recently published middle grade titles or authors? Oh my gosh. Oh. Uh, there's so many. My favorite authors are Rebecca Stead and Brandy Colbert. Um, Brandy um, is better known for her YA, but she also writes middle grade. Um, Rebecca Stead is my absolute favorite. I've read all of her books. She's amazing. Um, and it makes me so happy because we're often like, um, like even in here, it says for fans of Kate B. Canelo and Rebecca Stead. See, I didn't write that. The publisher wrote that and I'm always excited when I'm compared to her because she's not only a great author but a, an amazing human um and Brandy Colbert Case and Calendar is a favorite of mine so with Rebecca's books my favorites are When You Reach Me and Goodbye Stranger although all of her books are amazing um with Brandy I really loved The Only Black Girls in Town with Case and I loved Hurricane Child um, Ada Salazar has a book in verse called um, The Moon Within, which is beautiful. It's kind of like a, a modern day, are you there, God, it's me, Margaret, but it's in verse. Uh, so that's another one. I mean, I could really just go on and on, but those are the ones that come to mind right away. Gotcha. Uh, what are the differences between magical realism and contemporary fantasy? Oh boy, I don't even know if I'm the best person to answer that. So magical realism, um, for lack of a better term, is usually when there's, it's happening in the real world that there are dashes of magic. So magic may not be widely used in the, in the setting or in the narrative. In a contemporary fantasy, usually everyone in the story is aware of the magic and there's rules to the magic and there's rules to how the fantastical work. But in magical realism, it could be like a dash here and a and a little dash there, but it's not, but magic and or fantastical elements aren't necessarily controlling the narrative or controlling the, the setting or the world where it takes place. That's a very good answer. I've heard a lot, of, a lot of explanations of that, but that was a very concise one. Uh, what is your best advice for wading through the murky middle of writing a novel? Oh boy. Oh, I love this question because the murky middle is tricky. Here is what I found to those of you who are struggling with the murky middle. As a teacher, I have noticed that the murky middle often happens when there's not enough conflict. So you need to make sure that you have set up a foundation for a lot of conflict at the beginning. Because remember, the beginning, middle, and end all speak to each other. 
So you need to be setting up these kernels uh, for conflict in the beginning. And this can be big conflict. It can be small conflict. It needs to be internal conflict. Um, I don't think I'm good enough. Or external conflict. Um, my household is dysfunctional, right? You need to have both of those things and make sure that you're setting all of those things up to uh, hit against each other. And so what I have found with the murky middle is often there's not enough conflict set up at the beginning um, to power through the narrative, right? Next question is kind of a long question, so hang with me here. I'm currently working on a middle grade novel in first person, but I love the prologue I wrote in third person and the book end epilogue as well, also in third person. What are your thoughts on prologues and epilogues and writing these from a different PO, from a different point of view? P.S. I love your stories. Hello, universe. Helped me so much with crafting my dual POV manuscript. Very inspiring. Oh, thank you very much for that. Okay. Um, I'll give, I'll try to give another concise answer. Prologues and epilogues um, are fine if they're necessary. They have to be necessary. Now, oftentimes a prologue can often just become chapter one, but oftentimes not, especially if it's in a different POV, obviously it can't become chapter one. I think the questions you have to ask yourself is why is the prologue here? Why is the epilogue here? What happens if I remove, um, the prologue or epilogue, how does that change the story? If it doesn't change the story, then you probably don't need it. Um, why is it in third person versus first person? Your answer cannot be because I love what I wrote, which I totally get that, right? I totally get that, but that can't be the answer. There has to be an answer that serves your narrative. There has to be an answer that is more than I love what I wrote. Uh, it has to be necessary. And often what I tell students when they're revising or writing is if you take it away, what happens? If you keep it, what happens? How does that change? And if you can take it away without anything changing, then it probably shouldn't be there. So just make sure it's necessary and make sure it's necessary that it's in a different point of view. You're very good at concise answers. I'll give you oh, that. Thank you. <laughs> I've been working on it. <laughs> so you kind of spoke to this a little bit already, but I, I, there's always so much more to say about this. So I want to see if you have additional thoughts. Do you have any advice on how to choose which agents to query specifically uh, when you're looking at an agency that has multiple agents or just paring your list down to the 20? What are some factors that you're looking for, for the, for the right agent, like the perfect agent versus just an okay agent? That's a great question. And I do have some tips. One thing, a few things that I'll talk, I'll mention is Absolutely look at their client list and see which one uh, you respond to the most. Um, see which one um, is closest to what you've written. It doesn't have to be super close because then if it's too close, that can also be a struggle, right? Um, I would look at their social media, even if you're not on social media, I would look at theirs to see, because you can often, if they're on social media, you can often get an idea of a person's personality, how they approach things, um, you know, and get an idea of, what kind of person they are from that. Um, I will say that there are benefits to having um, a top agent, you know, like the big, big dream agent. Um, however, there can be downsides to that. One of them being if they're, if they have a lot of clients, um, they may or may not devote the amount of time that you need. So it's, it can also be good to have a, a, an agent who's newer and less established because they're building their list. 
Um, the benefit of having an agent at an agency, like let's say Andrea Brown, right? Um, one of the benefits is that if you get an agent um, in that agency, oftentimes, I don't know how their agency works, but I know at Pippin where Sarah is, um, they kind of have a team effort. So you, you kind of get the benefit of wisdom from all different sides. So I would look at their list. I would consider how many clients they have and how, and how you are as a writer and be honest with yourself. If you're a person who, who needs a lot of handholding, there's nothing wrong with that. But just know that about yourself and know that if you have a top name agent, they may not have the amount of time to devote as someone who's just starting out. So think about all of those things. Next question, more of a general question, but what is your advice to someone who is stuck? Oh, someone who's stuck. One thing I like to do when I'm stuck is I like to do writing prompts. Um, a lot of people don't like writing prompts and I don't know why, because I love them. Um, so I would say if you do writing prompts, the thing that, that's great about them is it's low risk, um, high reward, meaning it doesn't matter if it never goes anywhere, who cares if it's a writing prompt. High reward is that it gets your creative juices flowing. It forces you to be creative. Um, and it just kind of lets you oil the gears a little bit. So I feel like when we're stuck, it's because we're facing this daunting task of finishing a novel, you know, which is scary and big. But a writing prompt is small and easy and there's no, there's no risk. So, mm -hmm. and on my Instagram, by the way, at Erin and Trotta, I have like on my stories, on my highlights, I have a little button for writing prompts. So you can go there and grab some off of there. Very nice. Uh, how much do you know about your characters before you start the story? I know just about everything. Honestly, I talk a lot about um, characters. In my opinion, there's nothing more important than your characters. It doesn't matter how plot heavy your narrative is. There's nothing more important. I spend so much time with my characters. Um, I ask them questions. I ask them, what are you afraid of? Internal and external, remember. I ask them, what do you want most in, in life? And usually what they want, what they think they want isn't actually what they get or isn't actually what they really want, right? Um, I ask them, what's, how are your fears standing between uh, what you want and where you are now? I ask them, what do you think of yourself? What's your opinion of yourself? And then I ask, what are other people's opinions of you? So I know a lot about my characters. I spend a ton of time with them. And actually my whole, um, my novels are plotted through characters. So um, I know a lot about them. Mm -hmm. I love and, my characters. <laughs> and to anyone who's interested, there there is a Gotham character questionnaire on the Gotham website that has like all of these questions you can ask your character. It's super useful. Um, I'll include a link to that in the show notes to anybody who's interested. But yes, characters. Um, so next question, and I wanted to get to this as well. So I'm glad somebody asked this. As an illustrator, and I, 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 I'll circle back to that as well. But as an illustrator, have you ever considered telling stories visually like with graphic novels? I have not, as far as, as far as me illustrating a graphic novel, no. So for those who don't know, I illustrated maybe, maybe Marisol Rainey. Um, and I'm gonna be completely honest with you. I, I love illustrating and I love drawing, um, but pretty much um, the beginning and end of my talent is in this book. So <laughs> what I mean by that is 
I these are these are black and white, you know, grayscale line illustrations um, that are perfect for the world of Marisol, at least in my opinion. But my illustrative skills don't reach much further beyond black and white grayscale line illustrations. That's not to say I can't do a graphic novel that way, but um, I'm as I'm absolutely a writer first, so I'm an author who also illustrates, but I don't really think of myself as an author illustrator, if that makes sense. So I would be open to writing a script, a graphic novel script. I've started a lot of those, but I don't, I don't think I have the skill level to illustrate a full graphic novel. Mm -hmm. Next question, a good question is, how do you deal with imposter syndrome? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> That's a good question. I actually gave a lecture on this at Hamlin. I try to remind myself, because it's something I struggle with still, is um, here's how my imposter syndrome will, will often manifest. And it kind of relates to what I said earlier. I'll read a book and I'll think, how come I can't write a book like this? Laura Ruby is a great example. She's an incredible writer. She wrote Bone Gap. Um, she wrote 13 Doorways. She's incredible. And I think, God, her writing is so rich and so dense and vivid and lyrical. And why can't I write like that? Uh, and then I think, you know, I try to check myself and think, okay, well, we're all different writers. And just as I can't write like Laura Ruby, Laura Ruby can't write like Aaron Andrade Kelly, who can't write like A.S. King, who can't write like this person. Um, and it can be difficult to overcome, but I also try to use imposter syndrome to my advantage to say, okay, self-doubt, these, these prickles of self-doubt that we all get, um, like I had when I was illustrating Marisol, for example, um, I used it to motivate me to do better. Okay, so I know I'm not the greatest illustrator who ever lived, but I'm going to be the best illustrator I can be for Marisol. And I'm going to doubt myself along the way, but I'm going to take a billion illustrator workshops to get better. And I'm going to read and I'm going to talk to a billion illustrators and bellyache to them and let them coddle me and, and give me reassurances. Um, so I kind of use it. I try to use it to my advantage, honestly, to just make myself better. Mm -hmm. Ooh, what are your thoughts on violence and danger in middle grade, especially in fantasy and science fiction? Oh, I love violence and danger. Uh, I'm in books, not in real life. Um, I think that, that, you know, when done responsibly, of course, kids love, we all know, kids love violence and danger. They, they love darkness. They love scary things. Um, it's usually the adults who don't love it for them because we want to wrap them in bubble wrap and protect them from all the ugly things of the world. But better they, better they encounter ugly things in novels and know how to navigate them than in real life. Um, if it's done with care and with, with common sense, I think that it's fine. I mean, it's hard to have a science fiction or especially a fantasy without some violence and danger. Mm -hmm. uh, do you ever get caught up on how much time a project will take? I'll usually also start getting ideas for new stories as I wrap up one, but I begin to get daunted by how much time the edits for the current project I'm on. By, by how much time the edits for the current project I'm on will take. Any tips for overcoming this? Oh boy, it depends on how your brain works. Like for me, um, I love every step of the process, which I think has also benefited me in the business because I love everything about it. I love revising, I love 
getting the arcs. I love everything about it. Um, so I never, I, I never, I don't want to say never, but I rarely do I feel daunted by, um, the only time I have felt daunted, honestly, going back to the illustrations is whenever I had the illustrations to do, and I still have some to do for the next book in the Marisol Rainey series. Um, and so I'll relate it to that. So I have a lot of illustrations due for Marisol. And when I wrote this book, I had a lot of illustrations that I had to do. And I had the imposter syndrome and I was overwhelmed by how daunting it was. And I just took it one day at a time, honestly. Um, if you're distracted by the other project while you're trying to edit this project, um, my suggestion would be to, this is what I do. And I, you know, may or may not work for everyone, but if I'm working on one project and I have this other idea that it's nagging in my brain, I'll just tease out that idea. That's usually what I do in my brain and ask questions of it. And then maybe I'll jot something down or just to get out of my brain. But, um, just kind of take it one day at a time or even say, I'm going to, I'm going to edit like for the next Marisol book. I have many illustrations to do by the end of the year. So I told myself, okay, I'm going to try it. My goal will be one illustration a day. That sounds less scary than 60 illustrations by January 1st, if that makes sense. So that's what I try to do. Mm -hmm. Do you have a target word count pages or a time when you sit down to write? So do you have like a daily writing routine or goals that you set for yourself? I do not. I do not have a daily routine. I, I just really, honestly, I write when I feel like it. Um, but I often do feel like it, especially if I have an idea that I'm really excited about. I will go days, sometimes weeks without writing at all. Um, but then whenever I do write, I'm still writing in my head, which kind of counts as writing in my book. Uh, no pun intended. But then whenever I sit down, then I'll write. And I always write longhand with a notebook for my first draft because I can take it anywhere and not be distracted by the internet. But I don't sit down and have a have a target goal when I sit down. I find that very intimidating, you know, to say, okay, I'm going to write 1,000 words today. If I tell myself that, I'm going to write zero words because I'm going to be, I don't want it to feel like a homework assignment ever. Mm -hmm. do you have tips for public speaking as a debut lurks in the future for me i realize that i will have authory things to do and will likely have to speak about my story and the anxiety goes off the rails do you have tips do i have tips okay yes i do have tips so i was very nervous when i was starting out as well about speaking in public and now i love it i can just like talk all the time anywhere um but this is what i've learned you have to figure out your process, just like with writing. Now, I say that because when I was starting out, I was like, okay, I have to do a PowerPoint presentation and I'm going to write down my speech and I'm going to deliver it and I'm going to do my PowerPoint. And that's what I saw people doing. So that's what I tried to do. It was terrible. Um, and I learned about myself that um, I don't like using PowerPoints unless I absolutely have to. And I don't like writing down what I'm going to say. Um, now, there are other people who couldn't possibly talk without writing down what they're going to say. But when I do that, I, I sound like a robot and it's just not natural. It's not my personality. So figure out what feels good for you. It may or may not be PowerPoints. It may be note cards. It may be writing out every single word practice. Um, like you could do on zoom on this zoom platform, you can record yourself, just you talking to zoom and play it back, listen to yourself. Um, so 
there's a lot of things you could do. Just make sure you're, you are your personality, you know, do, do whatever fits your personality. For me, it's not, I can't write things down. I had to write my Newberry speech down and I wasn't happy about it, but I had to, because the horn book, like um, they, they published the speech. Um, so you have to send them a written thing. Otherwise I wouldn't have even written that down. Um, but I had to figure, okay, that's okay. Like if I would have told someone early on, I'm not going to write anything down. I'm just going to go out there and wing it. They'd probably be like, what? That's crazy. Um, but it's what works for me. I don't even like to know questions beforehand. If I'm doing something like this, I just want to just be fresh. I feel like that makes me way more comfortable. So you do you and congratulations on your debut. Well, people can get two more questions. You seem like pretty simple answers. So the first one, what non-writing habits or activities help you with your writing? Okay. Uh, well, reading, but that's kind of related to writing. <laughs> They're related. Um, you know what I've, I've done recently is I try to be creative in other ways. I'm actually taking a poetry versus also writing, but I'm taking a poetry workshop through Gotham, which I love because it's a totally different form of writing and it's been amazing. I also take piano to start taking piano lessons for the first time in March, just because I wanted to do something else creative that I loved um, that wasn't related to writing. Um, they all speak to each other, right? Like our hobbies, our interests, they all, you know, mm -hmm. they're all together in, in our creative souls. And last question, what's more important to you as a writer, the quality of the story or the quantity of books written? Absolutely the quality of the story. Um, now I also have a large quantity of books written, but hopefully they're all good quality too. Um, but absolutely without a doubt, it's the quality of the story. So then one last parting question before we get to, you know, where people can find you and all that, but parting advice to people who want to sort of end up where you are, where they're writing full-time, they have more time to write. What's your advice to them? My advice is, um, you know, the first one is kind of obvious, which is if you if you want to write middle grade or young adult or whatever you want to write, you have to read a lot in that genre, see what's happening. Current books, not books from like long ago, but modern books, see what's happening out there. I also think it's really important to build a writing community if you can, even if it's online, whatever writing community means to you or looks like to you. If you're on social media, there's a ton of them on Twitter. Um, and you know, Gotham, of course, like I've taught courses through Gotham and some of my students created their, made their own writing groups. Um, try to find a writing community if you can. I feel like that makes a big difference. And sometimes it could just be one person, one other person. Mm -hmm. And then before I let you go, what, what do you have to promote? What's coming out for you? Uh, and where can people find you online? So those kids from Fawn Creek comes out in March. And I want to tell you really quickly. Um, it's about a small town, a new girl arrives in a small town. Um, there's 12 seventh graders and they get a new student for the first time. And it's a book about all those relationships. The thing that's cool about this book and um, scary, because who knows how readers will take it, is that you actually get all points of view of all of the kids in this book, um, which was very daunting. Um, so that's what's special about this book. This comes out in March, but it's available for free order. Um, and what was the other question? Where am I? Yeah. Where can people find you on, on the web, on the interwebs? On the interwebs, on the World Wide web. So I'm on Instagram, 
Twitter and Facebook. You can find me at Erin Entrada. Um, and then I'm also, I have a website, of course, erinentradakelly.com. And that's where I am. Awesome. Well, thank you, Erin, so much. This has been a great discussion. I really appreciate you taking the time for this today. Thanks. It was my pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for your questions and for being here. Yes, and to all of our listeners, uh, we'll be back next week. We're talking to Tommy Dean. Uh, so we'll see you then at same time, same place. And until then, have a good day.